Hi, this is Kim Straczewski in the Czech Republic. I am listening to the Politics Podcast as my American Study Abroad students play hide-and-seek with the children of Ukrainian refugees. We arrange free basic Czech classes at our school to help with their stay here and arrange for our students to volunteer to play with their kids while they study. This podcast was recorded at 12.17 p.m. on Friday, April 22nd. Things may have changed by the time you hear this, and I hope the Russians and Ukrainians are closer to a ceasefire. Enjoy the show. Oh, that's great work. Yeah, it's amazing how people have really come together for, for the people of Ukraine. Yeah. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the White House. And I'm Frank Ordonez in Ukraine. And Franco, I want to say before we get into your reporting that this episode is one our listeners might not want to share if they have little kids around. Um, there is new satellite imagery that appears to show hundreds of grave sites outside the besieged port city of Mariupol. And Ukrainian officials say thousands of people could be buried there. Evacuation corridors are on hold. Officials had hoped to evacuate thousands from the city. Franco, this mirrors a lot of the news we've seen a few weeks ago around the suburbs of Kiev, where you are right now. What is the latest? You know, it's really bad. I mean, those images uh, we've been looking at show that some of those trenches um, where the bodies are are yeah. almost 300 feet long. Wow. They're kind of tucked behind a gas station and a cemetery in a village just outside of Mariupol. And as you said, city officials estimate there could be thousands of bodies buried in there, but they really don't know. Um, and the mayor of Mariupol says the Russians are using these mass graves to cover up war crimes. I actually had lunch with an advisor to President Zelensky today, and he, you know, he just said over and over that this is genocide. I mean, you're there, you're, you're reporting on the investigations into these alleged atrocities near Kyiv. What are you finding in your reporting? Yeah, I mean, it's devastating. I, I did also sit down with the chief prosecutor who's leading those investigations, and she told me that her office has already opened 8,000 war crime investigations. And she says that's not even complete. She said that number could double or triple or even more uh, because they have no access to the east, to Maripol, where, you know, so much of some of the, you know, potentially uh, devastating stuff is happening. I did follow uh, one group of civil society investigators working with prosecutors to a community outside of Kiev, a community called Paramoha, and uh, we stopped actually at an Orthodox church that had, you know, two massive holes in the side of the wood structure. I mean, the, so big. I mean, it was like the size of two small cars, really. Mm. The priest, he took us inside, and it was, you know, destruction. Broken crosses on the floor, shattered holy images everywhere, you know, a chandelier by the pulpit. And, you know, the priest just talked about how these, uh, you know, the Russians had come to the village, taken him, put him, you know, put him in his basement, held him against his will. He could not go uh, even to visit community uh, to help them bury uh, their loved ones. So investigators are looking at all that kind of thing and, you know, you know, looking at, you know, citizens, uh, civilians being held against their will. Uh, they were also looking at, in this case, a retirement community where allegedly Russians uh, were hiding out and using seniors as human shields. Wow. I mean, this is, again, allegations, but very yeah. concerning ones. Yeah. 
I mean, to no surprise, Asma, the U.S. announced that they're going to be sending more support to Ukraine. Can you sort of detail mm. what that support is and, and when it's going to get there? Yeah, you know, I will say, so, you know, just from the outset, I think it's worth noting as you hear what Franco's describing, there's very few things that feel like they have bipartisan support these days in Washington. Support for Ukraine is actually one of those rare things. Um, and, and so the president says that what he's focused on right now is trying to equip Ukraine so that it can really be prepared for what the administration is describing as the next phase of this war. They say that Russia was not successful in capturing uh, Ukraine's capital of Kiev, and so it's now uh, regrouping and refocusing on the eastern part of the country, the Donbass region. And, you know, essentially they think that Ukraine needs a different set of equipment for that area to fight that conflict. Um, it's just flatter terrain, President Biden said. Um, you know, so yesterday what he announced was $800 million more of security assistance. At this point, the president says that he has essentially drawn down all of the authority that Congress has so far allocated for Ukraine. And he intends to ask for more money next week uh, from Congress. Um, you know, you, you cover Congress, Sue, but from my sense, it's like it, it's not going to be a hard sell for him to get additional aid. No, I don't think so. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has made very clear before they went on their current break that when they came back, more money for Ukraine was going to be at the top of the agenda. And so far, there's been pretty considerable bipartisan support for more money. If anything, I think there's been some frustration that they haven't been sending enough, especially when it comes to military support. Mm. Asma, there's also been a move to help take in more Ukrainian refugees. That is right. Um, you know, last month, the president announced that the United States would take in up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees into the United States. But there hasn't really been, uh, so far at least, a mechanism to do that. And so to date, you've seen about, I think it's 15,000 Ukrainians who have crossed into the United States during the past couple of months, mainly over the land border at the south with Mexico. Uh, they have been given some exemptions. They have been allowed into the United States. But officials said this week that starting this coming week, uh, the United States will largely not be giving Ukrainians exemptions to come in at the southern border. And they've now created this process. They believe it will help streamline the ways in which Ukrainian refugees can come to the United States. Um, it, it's a bit of a sort of confusing process, but in a nutshell, they're standing up a website where uh, sponsors here in the United States can upload affidavits um, and have to indicate that they can financially support Ukrainians who want to enter into the United States. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to to watch how this process goes because there's been a lot of questions about how many refugees uh, the United States will actually take in. I mean, they've only taken a fraction of the refugees that, that they said are expected to take in this fiscal year. Um, and I've talked with refugees uh, from Ukraine who have really struggled to get information. So it'll be interesting to see how this, this new plan or process works out. And you know, one thing, Franco, they did tell us, um, officials from the Department of Homeland Security, that this is not going to be a, a system where, say, you are a Ukrainian refugee in Poland, you can raise your hand and individually apply for this. It is the sponsors who will need to upload affidavits. Um, they will need to indicate which Ukrainians they are applying for. All right, Franco, um, thank you so much. We're going to let you go. Thank you for your reporting, and please stay safe. Thanks, all. Yeah, bye, Franco. And Asma, uh, we have to talk about one quick thing before we go to a break. Um, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has been caught 
in a lie. And in a forthcoming book, two New York Times reporters, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, are offering new details about how Kevin McCarthy privately supported Trump resigning from office in the days immediately following the January 6th attack on the Capitol. McCarthy initially issued a statement calling that report, quote, totally false and wrong. And then the reporters offered up some receipts. They released audio late last night they obtained in which McCarthy is clearly heard stating that he would advise Trump to resign from office. That would be my recommendation. We should resign. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it. But I don't know. I mean, so this story is is wild, but I will say, like, so many things that we've observed within the Republican Party since January 6th, it all seems like it's Teflon. Nothing seems to stick, right? And so I'm curious if you feel like this will have actual an actual negative impact on Kevin McCarthy. You know, I don't think it will. And I think the Teflon analogy is right here, because I think what's most important, at least to former President Trump, is that even though McCarthy felt that way, and we kind of knew he felt that way, Mm. he'd even been publicly critical of Trump at the time. He's really since gotten in line. He's proved that he's loyal to the president. This highlights that he's loyal even over his own personal objections. And the question I put is, you know, why wouldn't Donald Trump want that person to be Speaker of the House if he's proven that he'll be loyal to him and, frankly, willing to lie to the New York Times about him. So I think it's kind of shocking because it's rare to catch a politician so clearly lying. Mm. But I don't know if the impact is really going to have any negative blowback for him. Sue, when you hear and when you read what Kevin McCarthy felt initially right after January 6th and you see how loyally he has gotten behind the former president. I don't understand how that evolution entirely came about. And maybe yeah. there is like a very long explanation here that you can't fit in. No, I, I actually think it's okay. a pretty short explanation. Okay. Because I think in, in that immediate aftermath, I think both Kevin McCarthy and Senate leader Mitch McConnell were horrified by, by what had happened. They they have said publicly that initially they were really angry at Trump, that they thought he played a role in fomenting what had happened. But that when they went and took the pulse checks of their rank and file lawmakers, that they weren't there with them. Mm. So I think that they they took those positions because leadership has to reflect where their members are. And the broader, you know, Republican lawmaker set is still behind Donald Trump. I think the big t- picture takeaway here is that come January, Congress could be led by two men who are very loyal to Trump, even though they have had very private uh, issues with him. So uh, I think that any private reservation to Donald Trump has been buried in service to him in the present. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about inflation here in the U.S. and in France. And we're back and we're joined by Eleanor Beardsley, NPR's correspondent in France. Hey, Eleanor. Hi, guys. So the French presidential elections runoff is happening this Sunday. I want to talk to you about all of that. But first, I'd like to talk about some of the issues that are driving politics there, because I think some of them mirror the issues driving the politics here in the U.S. Asma, you've done a ton of reporting on the impact of inflation on U.S. politics. Um, Can you talk about what you have heard from the voters you have been speaking to about how that's affecting Uh, how they view the election this year. And then I'd love to hear what Eleanor has been hearing about from voters in France. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's so interesting to think that there are global themes. I mean, this is the argument that you often hear from the Biden administration is that it's not just about inflation here in the United States. They try to argue that there are a global supply chain hiccups and problems. But to the Question about voters. Um, You know, I will say if you look at pretty much any survey in the last couple of months, you go out and speak with voters and you ask what's uh, at the top of their mind, their top concern, you'll hear about rising prices and inflation. You know, I will go out and, and hear from people who are retired engineers, people who are dual income families who feel like they are now buying generic products, who feel like they can't buy as many fruits and vegetables as they once did. Um, Women in particular who will quote to me the price increases that they've seen on grocery store shelves. And so it's just, it's an emotional issue that bugs people a whole lot more than other economic issues. Eleanor, is inflation dominating the political debate in France the way it is here? Yeah, I would say it's dominating, and it's really helping one candidate, and that's Marine Le Pen, because she's actually been campaigning on purchasing power since last Hmm. fall, and it wasn't that exciting last fall. But now it's the number one concern of French voters, especially like the price of gas has gone up nearly 30% in the last year. Um, And of course, some of that is because of of the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And that war has actually had a double impact. When it first broke out, Uh, it's President Emmanuel Macron who got a boost in the polls because everyone was just so just frightened. They couldn't believe there was a war on European soil and he was playing this high-stakes diplomacy trying to get a ceasefire. But that only lasted for about a month. And the second effect was that prices started going up. We've had shortages in the grocery store. You can't find, like, sunflower seed cooking oil. You can only find olive oil now in stores because most of that comes from Ukraine. And it's really hitting people on basic price necessities. So Marine Le Pen, who has kept focusing on this this issue, it has come back around to help her. And she's seen as the candidate who's helping working class people make ends meet. And Macron is sort of the candidate for the rich. Hmm. You know, he's a globalization candidate, a high financier. He helps big corporations and the rich. I mean, and you hear this all the time at Le Pen rallies. I was at one yesterday and a couple, Natalie and Franck Herblain, they're agro-industry workers in factories, and they both told me that. Parce qu'on a marre de Macron par rapport à tout ce qui nous a fait vivre pendant cinq ans. Nous, on n'a pas de pouvoir d'achat. They basically said we're sick of Macron and what he's put the country through. We don't have any buying, purchasing power. The rich are getting richer, and people with who don't work get some handouts. But we who work hard, we have nothing, and Marine Le Pen is going to do everything she can to help us. So you're hearing that over and over. She's the candidate of the little guy. Wow. I mean, this election is familiar, I think, to a lot of American listeners. This is a rematch. We, we've heard about uh, Macron competing against Le Pen before. But she seems to have maybe rehabbed her image in the eyes of a lot of French voters. I mean, she had been cast, at least I think, uh, the way Americans think of her, as kind of a far-right fringe candidate. Right. She has recast. For an American, I'd like to say, uh, she's no, she's not. We, we see her as some sort of racist extremist. No, she's changed. That was her father. She doesn't have that image. She's more a populist right. And she has recast her image. I've seen the difference in the crowds at her rallies, even since the last time five years ago. Totally different crowds. These are really mainstream people who who would not vote for an extremist. She's just, you know, she's like, I want to protect our system for the French. It's like, you know, make America great again. She's like, make France great again. It's all about that. 
but Eleanor, can I ask you, I mean, the, the cultural yeah. issues, are they not there too, though, under the surface? I mean, one thing, for example, I've heard just through social media channels is her talk about banning the hijab, the headscarf in public, right? Like it feels a bit like what we saw in the 2016 election here with President Trump, which, you know, people will say at times was about the economy, but the, the race and cultural issues were always apparent with President Trump as well. Well, you know, I want to say yes and no, because mm. yes, she did say that, but she also said that is absolutely not a priority that she would do. And I think if she actually got into power, she wouldn't do it. It would be impossible. But let, this is another factor I want to get to. This election this year, there was another candidate much further right than her. His name was Eric Zemmour. Mm. I mean, he did not hide his xenophobic, anti-Islam anti-immigration talk. And that also made her seem more mainstream. She literally didn't even mention those issues much at all. She just stuck to the economy. So that's changed things as well. And actually, you know, I was at this rally yesterday. I must have talked to 10 people waiting in line. Nobody cites we need to stop immigration. It's all about the little guy. We've been overlooked. The Yellow Vest movement, remember that? The working poor who came out, they're not gone and they really hate Macron. So uh, Americans have this view of her that she's just so racist and all that. And it's not really the case. I'm not saying she's not. I, I, it's just changed. Everything has changed this year. So I would call her a populist, a right-wing populist. But the far-right guy was Eric Zemmour, and he's now gone. But his voters aren't gone, actually. So, But he's not in the election anymore. There is that fringe, but she's not the leader of that fringe currently. Macron, at least based on polls that we've seen, is favored going into the runoff. Um, If he wins, obviously, it would be more of a status quo election. But I I wonder if Le Pen were to pull off an upset victory, what's at stake for France here? I think particularly in this moment because of what's happening in Ukraine and sort of the U.S.-Western alliance, she seems like someone who might be willing to disrupt some of those traditions. Yeah, absolutely. We would see an inward turning France, you know, taking care of itself. Um, All this, you know, let's focus on the French in France. France wouldn't be leading the EU with Germany anymore. You know, France and Germany have led the EU. It's very important that motor, that Franco-German motor, that would be gone. They would probably, France would be trying to weaken it, opt out of policies. France would cultivate different alliances. It might not be as close to the U.S. It would probably be closer to, you know, Eurosceptic countries like Viktor Orban's Hungary. And, you know, while Le Pen has condemned Russia over the invasion of Ukraine, she did say that when this war, this Russian-Ukrainian war is over, that NATO needs to establish a rapport with Russia and Putin again. So who knows how far she would go in restoring an alliance with Russia. France is, is a leader on the world stage in Europe and with ties to the U.S. and you know, it has peace operations, fighting terrorism in Africa. There's so many things. And all of this would probably end. The whole tenor of France's foreign policy would change. Well, uh, we know you got to report all weekend long. Depending on how this election shakes out, we might actually need you back on this podcast very soon. So, Eleanor, thanks so much. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, time for Can't Let It Go. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com politics and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. 
Noom is an award-winning weight loss program that uses psychology and personalization to help you lose weight and keep it off. Noom gives you knowledge designed to help you make informed choices that fit you and help you reach your goals. Sign up for your trial and get psychology-based weight loss support at noom.com slash nprpolitics. And we're back, and it's time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go, the part of the show where we talk about the things from the week that we can't stop talking about, politics or otherwise. And today we brought in a surprise guest, Tamara Keith. Hello. Hello, hello. Tam, since you're joining us for this segment, what can't you (laughs) let go of? Well, I was the White House radio pooler on Monday, uh, which is the day of the White House Easter egg roll, an annual tradition that uh, went away for COVID, but was back and better than ever. Um, Part of this tradition involves these totally bizarre looking kind of creepy Easter bunny costume things um, that appear next to the president. This year, there was Mama Bunny, whose head was on in such a way that she looked as though she was staring at the sky, maybe looking at an eclipse. (laughs) Um, And then the other bunny, the one with glasses. Um, You know, fun little thing. But a a reporter at BuzzFeed uh, named David Mack found out the backstory with these costumes, uh, there, there's a man, a costume designer named John Shens. He made one uh, for in 1981 to uh, accompany uh, President Ronald Reagan at the egg roll. And then, so the story goes, they gave the costume to the National Park Service. And then the next year, the bunny showed up and it was dirty and bedraggled. And... John Shen said, never again. <laughs> Not on my watch. <laughs> Not on my watch. These bunnies are in so many pictures with children and the first lady and the president, and these bunnies are going to look good every single year. And So, so this does man, he make a new one every year? No, he is the guardian of the bunnies. And mm. these are the same bunnies that have been coming year after year after year, but they return to uh, John Shen's every year. And get cleaned up and tucked away and taken care of until it's time for them to come back again. Now, the sad thing is that he did recently die of lung cancer. And his friends are carrying on his legacy and taking care of the bunny suits and bringing them back to the White House. So it's a sweet story. And I'm I'm glad that this uh, hero of costumes uh, got his acknowledgement. You know, I have some mom guilt around the Easter egg roll this year because I actually put in for the lottery and and won some tickets. You did. And then, but so then you didn't I go. I didn't go because it was cold and it rainy cold. and I just thought my toddler is going to have a miserable time yeah. if we drag her there. So I'm glad we didn't tell her. It was going to be a surprise. So mm. fortunately, I didn't hype her that we were going to go. she's not an NPR politics podcast I know, listener. I was, thank God she doesn't know how to download this podcast. But I'm hoping <laughs> next year we'll win the lottery again and I can take her because I do think it's super fun for the kids that yes. get to go. They might not be as terrified as the Easter Bunny mascot costume costumes as some of us adults are. But (laughs) Asma, what can't you let go of this week? So mine's not so funny, but I will say it is something that has been on my mind a lot. Um, Y'all, I think, know that I am a big tennis addict, played tennis for years, love tennis. Long story short, just the other day, Wimbledon, you know, the famous tennis tournament in the United Kingdom, decided to ban Russian and Belarusian players from participating in this year's tournament. And, you know, it It just like made me, I feel like I've weirdly been sort of obsessed with this topic because I don't entirely see the merits 
of barring individual athletes from competing in an individual sporting event. I mean, it's not the Olympics where you're, you know, coming in under, say, the banner of your country. And, you know, I mean, look, like there's some really good Russian and Belarusian athletes. Um, I think it was like four of the top 20 hmm. total in the men and women's side are from Russia or from Belarus. I think like the currently number two ranked player in the entire world for men's tennis is Russian. And um, yeah, and they don't get a chance to play. And I, I, I feel like I understand the desire to put a lot of pressure on Russia. But in reality, like, is barring an individual player, you know, who didn't really choose the country they were born in. Right. Like the private citizen versus the yeah. state. Like, is that going to make Putin stop this war? No. Anyhow, it just made me wonder, like, what is the point exactly of punishing everybody who happens to be born in a particular country for the actions of their government. And I don't know, maybe you'll have a convincing counterargument, but I can't wrap my head around why. You know, sometimes I think it's because a, a lot of people in the world don't want to talk about politics and they don't want to deal with sort of global affairs, but sports is something that like bonds people, it bonds humanity. And I think they sometimes we use sports, the Olympics is a great example, and like barring Russian athletes there, although a lot of the barring was because the Russian athletes were doping yes. and deserved <laughs> right. to be barred. Right. It wasn't because of the actions of the Russian government. But, you know, I think in, in different ways, different aspects of the global community are trying to send a message to the Russian government that like your your actions are so abhorrent, we're willing to take extraordinary measures against your citizens and your government. And I don't know if it has, I, I, I get, I get the intention of what they're doing, I don't know if it will have uh, the effect they're hoping for on Russian sentiment. Yeah. Sue, what can't you let go of? What I can't let go of this week, and it's only funny now because <laughs> everyone's safe, Oh boy. was yeah. the dramatic evacuation of the U.S. Capitol oh, yeah. Wednesday evening. You know, um, Everyone in the Capitol Hill community, including reporters up there, will get um, emergency notifications when things happen, suspicious package, something like that. And they come from the press galleries. And, and it, honestly, it's a fairly standard thing to kind of get these, you know, a door is closed here, go out this way. But there was a really scary message that was sent out Wednesday evening that was like, evacuate aircraft headed towards the Capitol, evacuate immediately, wow. immediate evacuation order. And in the orbit of things that you get, this one was like, oh, oh uh, yeah. wow, this is bad. Um, fortunately, Congress is out of session. Uh, it was late on a Wednesday evening. There was probably very few people within the Capitol complex and the office buildings. But it did create a, a mini panic. Turns out there was an aircraft in restricted airspace, but it was authorized. It was a military plane. It was part of a, a flyover event. They actually had parachuters come out of the plane at the local baseball yeah. stadium, which is very close to the Capitol. It was part of Military Appreciation Night. And the thing I can't let go about it is, you know, this kind of stuff happens all the time in D.C. And there's a protocol. Like everybody that needs to know needs to know that there's going to be an airplane in the sky at this point. It's not something you have to worry about. Somebody forgot to tell the Capitol Police oh this God. time. And I can't let it go because I just always think of like when these kind of screw ups happen. And I'll tell you, Speaker Nancy Pelosi is mad oh, her statement about was this. flaming hot. Whoo! She's like whoever at the FAA, like somebody's head needs to roll. But I'm just thinking, you know, obviously this is a human error. 
And that poor person or persons who just like forgot to send the email, <laughs> right? Like it really probably just comes down to simple human error. And, you know, you open up, the, how many times have you like opened up an email and forgot to hit mm. send on it or stuck in the outbox? Thought you made the phone call. Yes. <laughs> Maybe your inbox is over its limit and it didn't go out. So uh, I can't let it go because I think about whoever that person is. Man, they had a really bad week at work. <laughs> mm. All right. I think that is a wrap for us today. Our executive producer is Mathoni Matori. Our editors are Eric McDaniel and Krishna of Calamore. Our producers are Lexi Shapittle, Elena Moore, and Casey Morrell. Thanks to Brandon Carter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the White House. And I'm Tamara Keith. I also cover the White House. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 